welcome everybody how do you like my new hat it's very nice my name's wow, indy <laughs> like that hat my name's indy and the gentleman next to me is jay powell from powell group consulting and we have a lot of indie game business logos up here that's amazing and welcome to indie game business today we've got lizette Titri montgomery she's the ceo of cornerstone studios we're going to be talking about a plethora of things, but the title for this one is The Current Market Challenges for Indie Game Companies. This is going to be a deep dive right here. So welcome. Welcome, everyone. Yes, absolutely. Welcome, Lisette. It's been a long time, and I regret we haven't gotten you on here now, but the perf- the timing is perfect now because of, of what you're up to with Cornerstone. But So let's start where we always start. Tell us how you originally got into the industry and walk us through your career up to this point. Wow, Um, it's been quite the journey. Uh, I've been making games for 23 years, so I started in the PS2 era. Um, I was really originally thought I was going to get into film, so I went to school for computer animation, um, where I moved to California with two suitcases, and a PC I built myself, and I was really lucky to get my first job actually at games. Uh, it's a small studio called Page 44. I think they were bought by Zynga many years ago. And um, that was my first job. We were actually contracted by EA, and that's when I realized, you know, just go to the people with the bigger paychecks. <laughs> and then shortly after working at Page 44, I went to uh, EA, and I was there for quite some time. Um, And then I moved about a little bit as I moved up through leadership, um, being um, one to spend a stint at two cents at EA, a stint at Ubisoft, a few small studios. And then uh, my last role was at Double Fine before starting Cornerstone. All right. So much like my, oh, shit. Am I? There we go. I lost Dan somewhere. I thought I was talking to the air. Um, no, I'm sorry. Are you muted on Discord, Lizette? Because your audio is not coming through there. Let me make sure. That's why I was trying to figure out. Yeah, okay. Yeah, I changed my import devices. Of course it did. Of course it did. That's what happens in Discord, right? Yeah. Oh, there we go. Now I see you lighten up. Excellent. Hi. There we go. All right. So much, actually, I would, I would say even worse than my first round. So I started my first company in 2010 after I had been in the industry for a while, which was like the last big recession we had. Brilliant freaking timing to start a company. You're starting Cornerstone now, which is, for lack of a better word, this industry is a shit show at this point in time. Literally had another a buddy of mine who's in tech but not in games messaged me yesterday that he was getting laid off and asked if I knew anything. And I was telling him how bad our industry is right now. And during the course of that LinkedIn conversation, another major studio announced that they were doing layoffs. And I'm like, okay, so here you go. Why now? <laughs> well, a few things uh, are sort of in confluence at this point. Um, one, I feel that, you know, after Psychonauts 2 and the success I had leading that team um, and essentially restructuring that team for success, I feel like I'm in a place where I'm like really ready to start my own company. Two, there are games in the market that 
I feel are a bit redundant and the players are also kind of wearing thin. So I think it's also a really great time to be building new content um, and approaching new audiences because we've kind of maxed out on the audiences that we currently speak to, but we are really have left a lot of money on the table with you know diverse um, players, particularly, um, and in new regions. So I feel that this is a really great time to actually disrupt the industry. I, I don't disagree with you, and I love the. We've had two studios in the last like week who have announced they're buying themselves back and going independent. So. Uh, God, who was it yesterday? Saber announced yesterday and Toys for Bob earlier this week have said, to hell with this, we're going to do it ourselves, which I do absolutely love. So tell us a little bit about how this transition is going from you and the other co-founders that you have on your team who all come from play. How has the journey to Indie Triple I been so far for you? Um, overall, it's been really a positive experience for us. Um, we have been in stealth mode for some time, cooking a lot of ideas. Um, and over the last few months, we've been like soft pitching to our industry friends and colleagues and just starting to begin the process of reaching out to investors. But, you know, we're approaching it from a learning and development standpoint. Um, we are really trying to gather as much information about where the market is going right now and who our customer is going to be. Um, and a lot of that is being shaped by our conversations with investors and publishers, um, in addition to our, our strong internal network of developers. So for us, it's been a, a really great journey as we've been forming and solidifying who we are and the kind of projects we wanna make. Um, and now we're kind of getting into the headwinds of, of funding. So I wanted to, without going into all the gory details and anything is confidential, obviously, I want to talk more about the soft pitches that you did because I, I did one of them with you. I absolutely loved it. And I don't see a lot of studios doing this. And I think they absolutely should. Can you go into as much detail as you're comfortable with on, on that process, why you decided to do it, how it's going, that sort of stuff? Yeah, I think I've always kind of taken a, I don't know, I want to say more academic approach, but I've always taken a very strategic approach to how I develop content and develop ideas. Um, and I didn't take a different stance and the same approach with this process. Um, I have a lot of training in design thinking. And with that, you know that you just don't run with the first idea. You do a lot of iteration, you do a lot of feedback, you look for the yes ands in your process to kind of figure out what's going to stick and what excites people. And for us, we wanted to come up with not just one great idea, but several really strong ideas, and then workshop that with our network to see what really kind of bubble to the top. But we also presented one with three strong games that could be successful. So I didn't, we didn't make it easy for them to choose. No, you didn't. I really wish you would have, but you did not. Um, but no, you you sat down, you, you booked time with, with me and with, I'm sure, a lot of other people as well, went through all the pitches. And then a day later, we, we get a nice little survey to fill out on which one that we liked and which one. It was really, really well done. And, and I do think more studios should look at it this way 
you know, because the fear that you have when you're, you know, talking to a team and they're going to go with investors and publishers is that they're going to go in and say, here's three projects. Which one do you like? We'll do whichever one you want. But that's not what you all are doing. You're going in with, you know, three or four projects and saying, okay, what do you think about this before you're going to all the investors and, and publishers? And so I'm glad that's going really well for you because I think it's a very good, you know, very, like you said, academic way of attacking this whole problem. So um, I don't know if, if you decided which one you're going to do. I mean, I'm just curious. Yeah, we have. We have okay. settled on one. Um, it's definitely the wackiest idea. Ah, yes. <laughs> I know. But for me, like that, that's exactly the reaction that I look for. Like through my development career, at any time an idea comes up and the team just starts cracking up, and they continue to keep cracking up about it. That's a sign to me that there's there's something there. You're bringing people joy. That that is fantastic. So I'm interested to get your take on dice versus GDC because this was my first dice. Was had you been before? This is my second dice. Okay. So we all know what to expect in a few weeks when we get out to San Francisco. How would you say DICE and your experience there stacked up against the GDC norm? Yeah, I think uh, maybe I'm coming at this from like uh, years of attending GDC as a developer versus a studio founder. But GDC is definitely game development focused. We're talking about the people who are in the trenches, building the features, building the sets, going through the bugs, looking for new ways to find efficiencies and how they work. Um, where DICE is definitely more on the executive side, I would say, a little bit more on the the wheeling and dealing side of the, the, the development um, process. So for me, it was two very different audiences of who attends who attends DICE and who attends GDC. And not saying that both things don't happen at both conferences, but there's definitely a more business focused community at DICE. Uh, that's, that's exactly what I found. I told someone that this, I might have told you, DICE may have been the nail in the coffin for GDC for me because you know, given the amount of money that you have to spend to go to GDC between flights and hotels, and then just if you want to actually eat in San Francisco, um, it's ridiculously expensive. And so, you know, going out to DICE and even with the pass, it was something that it was still cheaper than GDC. And, you know, I too, I had three days of absolutely back-to-back, -back, well, not back-to-back -back meetings. And I did think I got sick at one point, but that was the freaking air in the desert I found out later on. But no, it's I, I have the very same thoughts on it. I mean, it, that DICE to me was way more beneficial than GDC has been for the several years in the past. Um, so uh, I'm once again claiming this year that this is going to be my victory lap at GDC and I'm done. But I've also said that yeah. for the last three years. <laughs> Yeah, I, I think I'm fortunate because I live in the Bay Area. So GDC is, you know, the, the cost of the ticket is just the cost that I'm concerned with. Um, but I I don't, I can't imagine what it is like for a single dev trying to spend five, around $5,000 to come to GDC every year if they're not getting any assistance from their company. Um, and so I do think it is becoming highly cost prohibitive. Um, and there's something they need to address about that. Um, and, I, you know, I don't have the answers because I don't run UDM or UMD, the organization that runs GDC. But I do feel like I had a, it's a more intimate experience at DICE. Mm -hmm. And 
I think the real goal of most of these conferences is to make connections. And I think that that DICE does that extremely well. I mean, that's exactly, I was talking to a developer earlier this week and that's exactly what I told them. It's like, don't, they were on the fence about whether or not they needed to go to GDC. And I'm like, it's not about pitching your game. It's about building these relationships. And it's difficult to do that at GDC because typically you're, you know, back-to-back -back meetings and or you've got a meeting in the next hour, you have another one, but you have to get from the W all the way to the Intercontinental and then back to the Regent and then over to the, you know, JW. You can't really sit down and have a conversation with someone and get to know them. But that was, you know, you could do that. The irony is, even though we were on a casino floor, you could still have a decent conversation with somebody and, you know, build that relationship. But that's one of the things that, that I, I tell developers. It's like, you're going to work on relationships. A lot of the publishers aren't going to remember your game at the end of the week anyway. So you're going to have to send it to them and all of that sort of stuff as well. Um, what are some of the things that you've taken and this is not just you, but your entire team, we've taken from all your decades in the AAA space and you're bringing to the indie side. Ooh, so many learnings over the years. Um, I think one of the things that I think sometimes gets lost when we talk about AAA and these really gigantic studios that, that have formed as a result of this desire to deliver 100 hours of content a week, um, is that most of the players don't get through that content. Um, and so you're developing a 100 hour game where maybe 20% of your players make it to the end if you're lucky, um, but 80% are gonna get through the first 20, right? So it's really kind of looking at like, what are the learnings in AAA? Why are we creating so much content that's mostly being unseen and I'm paying a huge cost for that? So for me, I'm really looking at like, how can we deliver on quality, but at a scale that is sustainable? And how do we deliver on quality and to serve a community um, that wants this content at a regular interval without burning out my team and burning through resources that are necessary because I'm providing features that maybe 10% of my players are gonna interact with. So for us, we're really looking at like how we bring quality to indie, um, but at a scale that is actually going to be digestible and, and, it, and enjoyed um, by our customers. And I think like games at the scale is like Psychonauts 2, for example, um, games at a scale of um, Hellblade is a really great example. Something that's 10 to 20 hours, like a, like a good book, for example, that you finish over two weekends, rather than these 100-hour epic games that are mostly unseen. It is, and I always like looking at the, like the achievements and seeing how many people got this, this, this. And you're right. I mean, you have all of this content. God knows, I mean, Baldur's Gate, God knows how much content was created for that thing. I don't think anyone's ever figured, figured it out yet as far as how much stuff is just out there that's not getting seen. So, I mean, do you feel like that 10 to 20 hours is the is the sweet spot in there or? I do. I think it's a sweet spot because... I mean, we're building games to assuming people have nothing but time. And that's just not what I'm hearing from people I know, the people who play games, people who are working multiple jobs to pay their rent. They don't have 100 hours of time or thousands and hours, thousands of hours of time to waste. They want to get in, enjoy something, and get out. 
and then do that on a regular basis a few times a week with their friends, right? And that's what's going to keep people engaged. It's not trying to slog through 100 hours of content. It's just not what most players actually want. It is. As, as we get older, it's like kids and everything else. Then you get to that point where it's like mine is he's old enough now that we can play games together, you know, instead of just like little kids games. But it it is one of those things. It's it's that back and forth on whether or not we make a really tight, short thing. And then how is that going to be received in the in, in the market? It's everybody going to look at it and go, oh, well, that's just too short. It's not worth. 40, 50, $60, which just aggravates the shit out of me. But anyway, um, or, you know, do you go this big route now? So here's the, we're talking about big games. Rockstar announced yesterday that everybody that's working on GTA six has to come back to the office five days a week. Are you, are you all going to do this remotely? Or are you going to get space where you're all together? How are you attacking this whole project? I think for us, especially with our core team being in the Bay Area, remote is certainly going to be the answer. Um, we also want to have the ability to attract talent from anywhere. Um, and for us to do that, I think we have to be remote. I think there was a lot of challenges that I experienced when we were hiring for uh, when I was hiring on South Park and when I was hiring on, on um, Psychonauts, that it, it is very hard to pay someone a living wage and have them live comfortably here in the Bay Area and just generally in California. Um, and I, I don't think it is the best business strategy to focus slowly on on-site um, creators and um, teams at this point, because we are going to need to open up um, our ability to hire um, from anyone anywhere as long as they're extremely talented and able to do what we need them to do so i think that remote is the future um unfortunately when i do see those sort of calls for um you know everyone has to come on site the the return to office that often comes shortly what comes after that is a layoff announcement um and so when i see those i think sure that's a strategy but there's an underlying motive there for some of these companies so that they can justify why they're doing these layoffs so it's also kind of a canary in the coal mine of, of a company's intentions so it's it's one of those things that quite frequently is basically used to flush people out exactly so we're, we're not going to let get you people off. To, yeah you're going to quit and get people to quit before you have to pay them a separate uh -huh. so another thing to consider so how do you manage, I mean, you're going for a very high quality game and I don't disagree with you. I, I'm a hundred percent remote, but I've been running a remote company for 15 years now. So it's kind of like second nature. How do you manage a big budget, high quality game with everyone being remote? Is this going to be new for you all? Or have y'all done this in the past? How do you go about structuring everything? Fortunately, I have experienced uh, shipping products during the pandemic, and that sort of forced everyone to kind of solidify those sort of processes and, and, um, and habits that need, are needed for a remote team. So we all have experience with that, my three, my three partners, um, Raymond Graham and Marcus Montgomery. Um, so we're very comfortable working in the remote space. Um, and we also need also understand the need for like face-to-face -face time as well. 
So that includes having on-sites with your team, ideally seasonally, but at least annually, because, you know, humans are still humans and we need to, to connect and, and build relationships, um, especially when things get hard. Um, so I think for us, it'll be an easy transition because we've been doing this for a few years. Um, but it is always about culture and connection at the end of the day. So when you're, I mean, that, that gets into the whole hiring thing when you're building up, I mean, I'm getting ahead of myself. The good news for you is there is an absolute shit ton of talent out there right now because of all of these layoffs. And when you're being able to pull from anywhere in the world, that is a, you've got a big bump, I mean, big bump there. That's a wonderful position for you all to be in. Where, where do you fall on that hiring for culture, hiring for skills argument that is always out there when people are bringing new folks on? Um, of course, skills are the most important because you've got to be able to hit the ground running when you get hired. Um, and so for us, we're always looking there first. Can the person come in and contribute? But at the same time, if you're impossible to work with, you're just making everything harder for everyone else. So there's also the culture, I would say, I can I consider it more like attitude fit than culture fit. I think sometimes culture fit can be used for nefarious reasons to dismiss people. But for me, it's more, is there an attitude fit? Can we collaborate in a way that is effective? Can you communicate? in a way that is not going to um, ruffle feathers, right? Are you able to receive feedback and give positive feedback? And so for me, there, I can't say one is more important than the other, even though skills get you through the door, but your attitude and your ability to work with people is what keeps you there. I do like that description so much better than the culture fit. It's like, no, it's not the culture that's the problem. It's the fact that that guy's an asshole. That's the problem. <laughs> Attitude fit is much, much better. Um, so as you've been going through this process for the last few months and the industry has been imploding upon itself in its post-pandemic hangover, have you seen more challenges than you think? I mean, I don't even hate to ask that because obviously you've seen more challenges than normal. What parts of starting this company or what parts of the challenges have been worse and the hardest right now with what you all are doing? Well, I think the challenge that everyone having is funding, right? I mean, the funding sources are, I would say they're drying up. They're just holding on. They're holding on to the reserves. They're waiting for the market to sort of soften a little bit. They're waiting for the interest rates to come down so money's a little cheaper to borrow. Um, and then you're seeing all of these speculative investments sort of blow up in people's faces that kind of entered in the industry during the pandemic for short-term returns. And um, now you're kind of seeing the fallout from some of those bad decisions. Um, so I think that's everyone's challenge right now. If you're fully funded, you're in a really great place. Enjoy it. But the rest of us are out here scrapping for every dollar. Yes. Full time, without a doubt, everything is about revenue right now. The, the good news is, and this is like the, the silver lining I see in all of this. We we're starting to see this news, you know, like with Toys with Bob and Saber and someone asking chat, just wondering how they raised half a billion dollars. Keep in mind, Sabre is the overarching company that owns 
multiple other companies underneath them. So it's not like Sabre's one little company. They have access to a good chunk of money. And I think 500 million isn't, I don't think that was really that hard for them to scrounge up, giving everything that they own. Um, but we are seeing situations like that. We're seeing more and more publishers. I mean, going back to Dice, there were two companies that I met with one that used to be a fund and is now publishing one that was a developer and now they're doing publishing and investing. So, you know, as we're looking on our side at all the publishers and investors that are out there, I would argue that we're almost seeing a one-to-one -one shutdown versus pop-up mode right now. If not, we're seeing more new publishers and investors come online because I think a lot of people realize this is a good time to get you know, to start buying and start investing in things because everything is such a mess right now. Yeah, I mean, the time to capitalize on, um, that time to capitalize is when there's a crisis, not when things are good. And so you're seeing people who would have per preferred to purchase their company during the pandemic or take ownership or buy back, now having the ability to do those negotiations because there are people who are just leaving the, the investment scene um, because it's too wild for them or they understand that there's growth in the future and so they're they're placing their bets while the, the prices are low. And so I think I think it's it's just a transitionary time. But as I said, I think it's also a great time for disruption. I think there's a lot of money left on the table. And I think the players who have the money, who have left the money, don't understand how they're going to pick it up again. Um, and so I, I think people are really historically really bad at understanding money at scale. So when they hear 500 million, they think that's a crap ton of money, but they don't understand like that company made 2 billion last quarter. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> there, there, there's a lot of money that they have to pull from, you know? And so, I mean, the other thing that, that I'm interested to get your take on is just the types of games that we're seeing out there. So already this year, and I'm not going to call Helldivers 2 an indie game because God knows it ain't, but I will say it is a surprise because I don't think anyone, Sony included, expected the type of explosion in popularity that I have. We've also had Power World come out. We've had, you know, a couple of other games just in the last two months that have come on the scene and are doing very, very well. Where do you think content-wise and the type of game-wise the industry's going? Is it more the live service stuff? Is it more the big epic single-player stuff? Or is it more in the lines of what you all want to do? Well, I think it's a good question. I think there's a different game for every different player, right? And I think there will always be a space for single player games. And then, and conversely, there'll always be some space for multiplayer and connected gaming. But I think overall what I'm seeing, and I think the companies that are actually going to thrive in the future are the companies that are heavily focused on developing content that helps to solve the loneliness problem. If you really look at the things that are affecting society and why people are gaming, it's because they are looking for a connection. I heard this just really just kind of sad stat that uh, over most adults over 18, about 70% of us report feeling loneliness. And then there's a really even smaller amount, about 15%, 
mostly men who say they have no friends at all. So they rely on social gaming to kind of fill the gap of the connections that they're not making in real life. And so I think we have to start thinking about, you know, the shooters have been dominating the industry for quite some time. Um, and what you are seeing, and even within those games, they're trying to make the interactions between players be more collaborative. So you have to be positive with one another to move forward. And that's why games like Hell Divers are doing extremely well. That's why Pal World is doing extremely well. Um, people are looking for places to play and the way they and a place that they want to play with their friends regularly. And so I that's where I see the growth. It's not going to be the call of duties where you just go in and you know pwn people all day. That 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 grind is getting boring to a lot of people. They're looking for more from their games. They're looking for connection. They're looking to fill the gap that they're not getting with the friends that they are not making in real life, unfortunately. That is, I have I had never thought about it from that angle. And you're sitting there talking about it and I'm like, oh my God, yes, you are absolutely right. I had never thought about that. But the fact that, I mean, there were little things, you know, talk about the grind, you know, that was one of the, the things that Helldivers has been commended for. You kill something and your level in rifle does not go up. You, you know, there's no grind along that sort of speed. And, you know, the things that we're seeing, even going back through the pandemic, I mean, now that you have opened up that light in my head, things like Valheim, all of these cooperative, you know, building games. And I mean, I would say to an extent, that's where a lot of Fortnite stuff is coming from as well with, you know, Lego Fortnite and all that sort of, all that world. I mean, is that a market? I mean, obviously Disney just dropped like what, 1.6 billion or something into Epic. Is that something that you think is going to take off? You know, the games that are taking place within Fortnite within Roblox, within some of these other spaces? I think that they will, I think that that's an area where people feel that there's going to be a lot of growth. Um, and I could see where investors are very excited about that, particularly because now I don't have to worry about funding a, a studio who's going to have to develop their own pipeline. I don't have to worry about funding a studio where they're developing an engine and they'll be creating content for an already existing uh, consumer base. Um, but I'm also, I can also see the world where those experiences are far too um, sim similar and they all start to look the same together, right? So I think there's a double side to that. Um, and so, I think we're all kind of waiting to see how much this takes off. Um, but I do, I know that people who are creating for those spaces are excited because it gives them new avenues uh, for revenue. Um, but I think we'll wait and see how the consumer is actually going to react to that. So my concern with them is the discoverability issue. You know, as bad as discoverability is on Steam, at least there's a way that you can do it. I mean, it, with something like Fortnite and Roblox, you're really at the whim of the algorithm unless you start advertising directly to people. And even then, it's like how you can't send somebody a QR code to play, you know, like a Fortnite because it's going to send you into Fortnite and then you got to find all this shit. Um, but I mean, I do. I agree. The, the discoverability is the part that, that concerns me. Yes, you don't. You're right. You don't need to, you know, build an engine around anything. But that's also going to lead to 
more clones and more, you know, very simple things that get out there. Um, but at the same time, I mean, I'm seeing companies raise a ton of money and they're like, all we're doing is making Fortnite games. I'm like, okay. Um, all right. So you've touched on this one a little bit already, but someone else had the comment, you know, that life is hard for indie developers right now. And it, it absolutely is. No one's going to argue that. Western World Studios says, I keep reading excerpts of AAA games having too long in gameplay. Are there small studios starting to look for a sweet spot of gameplay for small indie games? And this also ties into an article that Chris Zukowski wrote a couple of months ago saying there's so many indie devs that are missing that middle experience. How should, you know, some of these studios look in their planning and look in design to make sure it's not too short, but it's not a 30, 300 hour, you know, epic as well. Well, I think what we're seeing, especially with the early access model, is very encouraging. Um, most of my career, it's like you're working heads down for three, anywhere from three to seven years to finish your product, and then it's out on the market, and your fingers are crossed um, that it's going to do well, and you're praying that you're going to get the right marketing support in order to get those sales. Um, but I think when it comes to indies, we we don't have the resources to do a 100-hour game, right? And so, but we also want to deliver a quality experience that our players going to want to play again and again. So for us, we really have to focus on quality, not quantity. Um, and I think studios like Outer Loop with Thirsty Studios is doing a really great job of delivering, you know, quality games with a, a really strong story and narrative. Um, I think those the story and narrative experience is always going to win out. Um, I don't see the point in delivering a 100-hour game that has a boring story. I'd rather play a five-hour game that has an exciting story because um, that's what people are going to remember. Those, that's what they're going to come back for. Um, and I think indie studios are, are moving away from the back-of-the-box sort of features that you're expected to support to compete with AAA and start understanding that it's the experiences and the, the and the stories that we create as indies and the risk we are allowed and we take that big studios don't, that give us an edge. How do you think, and the early access thing got my brain running, how do you think development on Psychonauts 2 would have gone if you had access to early access? Mm. Would that have been a good thing or a bad thing? I think that's a little harder with a single player game, right? Um, it's sort of like putting out the first three levels of your game before the game is finished. Um, I think because of Psychonauts and this, the community it has, and the I like to use the term member berries from South Park, the, the nostalgia that the, the, the player base had about the game, it had an inherent advantage where I think it possibly could have done really well. But I think if you're like, the first person, the first IP at the gate and trying to get an early access with a single player, that's a little bit harder. I think do think um, early access works much better for multiplayer games. Um, and then it helps you kind of build your features alongside your community as you expand. But single player games tend to be a bit more linear. And so the story shift may be a bit more harder to manage throughout the process. You, you could easily end up in a situation where you're iterating forever based on whatever the whims of the current player base are. Yeah, that's so much harder when there's like a very a narrative driving the entire gameplay experience. All right, so going to what you just said about, you know, 
much rather have a $5 game that had a better story than, you know, a $60, $100 game that just has a shit one. I've always, not always, because it hasn't always been around, the visual novel space, you've got some excellent stories in there, but publishers avoid that entire segment like the plague. How, so why is that? You know, why do you think, especially with the level of storytelling that a lot of those games can put out there, why do you think it's it's such a no-no zone for a lot of these publishers to go to? I think there's a few things there. Um, through my process of thought pitching and talking to people who are on business side and the investment side, there are some like trained or here, and then when they hear the word narrative, they think expensive immediately. They think, oh, the scripts, there's a writer's room I have to fund. Now there's a team of uh, animators that I have to fund for all of this story. And then there's NPCs. And so they just see cost, right? They don't see the inherent value of a strong narrative, which is interesting because then they turn around and look at anime and they're like, oh, this is amazing. There's three work <laughs> here. Uh, it's the same thing. It's just a slightly <laughs> different format. What the hell, people? This is. <laughs> and so it's sort of some of it. I think is lack of vision, and I think there's always this hesitance on the investor side to not invest until someone else has has sort of made the hit, right? And until they see a, a narrative-based game brings in a couple hundred million dollars, then then they won't start paying attention to it. Right now, they just think it's like cute little story time. And so that's how they, they treat that genre. But this is what is so frustrating. Every game doesn't need to make a hundred million dollars. You know, you can go out. It, it absolutely drives me mad sometimes. I'm like, okay, yes, you need to make a X number over what the development cost was. But not everything needs to cost you know, the, and, and this is why I, I have said for years, I don't know if I've ever said it publicly on here, but I probably have. I still believe there is a place for, a, you know, a visual novel narrative publisher. Even the narrative publishers we have don't touch that genre, but we have so many people working in that genre that if someone were to come together, give them a little bit of money, because these games don't cost, you know, $20 million to make and guide them a little bit, I think there's a lot to be done there and it's just no. And that it, it, as an English major in college and someone who just loves the narrative side of all of this, it just drives me batshit crazy. All right. So we've got a question. I said you're getting the full dose of my ADD today. Um, so one, uh, is your studio looking for a UI or UX artist? Not currently. Um, we're very much at the beginning of prototyping phase, but we will be you know, when we get funding stay to tuned. pay someone, stay tuned. <laughs> so which do you believe is better, self-publishing or getting published knowing the climate of the indie space? I think at the end of the day, the goal is always to try to keep as much equity in your company as you can and to try to keep as much creative control as you can. So, of course, self-publishing is the best financial option for most developers. The challenge there is how are you going to deal with the marketing, distribution, all of the support that you get from a publisher if you're handling it all yourself? 
And so I think in this current space, we still are figuring out the self-publishing model, things like early access, that stuff is helping, but we're not in a world where we can kind of completely abandon publishing and, and that model for financial support. Um, so I think it really depends on where you are as a studio. If you are financially solvent and you can manage self-publishing or you could find the resources to do that, I, I think a lot of people would prefer it. Um, but a lot of a lot of game developers are not rich people. So we uh, unfortunately have to rely on, on outsource. Um, outsource resources from publishers or investors. So, I mean, theoretically, if you all bring in an investor, not a publisher, you are still technically going to need a publisher because 99% of the investors out there are not publishers, nor do we want them to be. Are you going to, you and I are in a different situation. We've been doing this for two decades. You know, you've got a great team, you know, on your side who's also been doing this a very long time. We know how to self-publish, but a lot of these studios don't actually have a publisher at Dice asked me why I was not a publisher. It's like, because I don't want to be. I have been in the past. I don't want to go back to that. Can you see yourself, you know, with the experience that you have going the self-publishing route if you get an investor to come in and fund everything? Yeah, at the end of the day, it's it's about trying to keep as much of the money for yourself as you can, right? And so um, if we do find an investor, um, we will probably approach self-publishing as much as we can, unless we get like a really great partnership from like a major studio, because at the end of the day, you know, you can make a great game, but if nobody knows it exists, no one's going to play it. And that's really why those publishing relationships are important. That is very true. The, the days of a great game sells are dead and gone and buried and that horse has been beat to death. So that's not going to happen. For a lot of these studios right now, we're seeing a lot of indie devs come up. I mean, there were well over a thousand games that were around for Next Fest. I mean, there's a huge, huge amount of content being made out there. As an industry vet who's now starting her own, you know, studio, what is your advice to a lot of these teams who don't have the decades of experience that we have, who are coming into it fresh and want to want to make their own indie studio as well? Mm, um, I think one of the biggest challenges of being an indie studio is you don't know what you don't know. Um, and I've seen this happen again and again, where they're like, oh, we don't need this role in our studio, we could do it ourselves. And then they're in a position where their publisher is detecting a risk tolerance, and now they want to reduce your budget, and they want you to get it out of the door quicker. And now you don't have that person to manage that process. That's an example of like, I don't know, you don't know what you don't know, right? And I think the best thing an indie studio can do is immediately begin your network and build your network with fellow devs. Um, there are just so many cautionary tales and lessons to learn from others that you can tap into if you really begin to reach out and start to build that community. Um, I think the other challenge is, um, you know, funding is always going to be just an uphill battle, whether it's a good market or a bad market. Um, and so really have an understanding of how you're going to make money. And not that you're just because you're in love with an idea, but is this a viable product that is actually going to not just 
pay for itself, but actually feed me and my family for some quite some time because we all have to survive in this world. Um, and I've seen far too many indies like not taking a salary just to you know keep the payroll going. Um, so I think it really is about like being really honest with yourself about what you're making um, and making sure that you're really focused on building the network and support that's going to make that project a success because your instinct is to just get heads down and and just finish the game. But if you're not thinking about all of those things before the end, you're going to have no one to sell it to. How important do you think post-launch content is on some of these games that aren't meant to be live service games? You know, they're meant to be shorter narrative adventures. Where does that fall? Everybody's out there clamoring for you got to have all this post-launch content. How does that fit in when you're not doing a game that is built for it? Um, I think the challenge is, is, is why are you doing it if it's not built for it? And often that's because there's some downward pressure to increase revenue. Um, but it's not going to feel relevant or have value to your players if it's just an add-on at the end, right? I think the best... Um, post-launch content is content that has been planned for quite some time. Um, that is kind of ties right back into the main game. It just feels like a continuation or an, add, an addition or an added value to the game that you've already experienced, rather than I'm just gonna put out a bunch of skins to see how much revenue I can make from a clothing swap, right? I mean, those are valuable assets to monetize, but it's not the thing that's going to increase engagement. And for those sort that sort of content, you really have to have a solid plan and you have to design your game that way. And if you're slapping it on at the end, players gonna feel like you're just slapping it on at the end. Sorry, I'm, I'm catching up on Discord. All right, so one, we have a, a great question, but Mandisa always also had some stuff that didn't make it to the question that I was reading and wanting to rant on. Would you see a path where X AAAs and Indies combine their respective expertise? I mean, that's a bit of what you're doing, right? Yeah, I think that there is a, a really great opportunity for experienced devs right now to start their own studios. I think when you're in a room full of investors and your team has over 60 years of ex combined experience, versus a team that has maybe four or five years combined experience, they're all new, they're gonna take what they consider the more experienced bet. Um, but ideally there's some more of a mix of seniority on the more junior team to inspire, um, inspire confidence in the investors. And also because I've seen time and time again, because of the burnout rates in this industry, you're constantly having to reinvent the wheel. Um, if you're, you know, having to rehire, if you're going to have to rough skill. If you're going to have to retrain, because um, you're burning your team out because you're you're too um, spread too thin, or you're not you don't have the experience of running your studio. You really have to kind of think about like what processes and what knowledge can I bring in, um, either by consulting or like contracting with a AAA if you don't have that on your team. So it's really challenging, I think, right now, if you're just starting out. I mean, I, I 
put my hat off to anyone who's trying to launch in this market without like years and years of experience, but it's not impossible. But I think if you have tons of experience, that's going to help you make better decisions in your dev process. It's going to help you understand what the snafus are that you would understand um, if you're new. And so really, again, building those networks where you can have that sort of support is really going to save you a lot of trouble in the end. So next one up, what is your opinion about using PR companies while self-publishing? Is that a viable replacement for publishers? Um, I don't think so. Um, I think there's a lot that comes with publisher outside of just doing PR. I mean, there's PR and then there's marketing. There are two different departments, even though they're very much connected. Um, um, and what marketing really does is sort of gets your product out to as many people as possible. Um, while PR is more about how do we control the messaging around this product in our studio. So I think PR is more like the long-term maintenance of marketing while you know the marketing of your game kind of happens um, to the lead up to release. And then of course, consistently after if you're having content drops. So I don't think you can replace one or the other. Um, but I think both are necessary in order to keep your messaging with your community. And there's also a lot more that goes into publishing than just PR and marketing. I mean, somebody's yeah. got to do the QA, somebody's got to do all the localization, someone's got to have the relationships with Steam and you know Epic and GOG and everybody else or the console platforms as well to get it out there. So it, it's not as simple a solution as I'm just going to hire a PR firm and, and then drop it on Steam. Um, but yeah, so Jonathan on, on LinkedIn mentions the brain drain in the industry. And, and this is, we're going through it again. We're going to lose a lot of really good people with a lot of really good institutionalized knowledge, you know, through the course of all of these tens of thousands of layoffs that we're seeing in the last, you know, 12, 16 months. What can some of these smaller companies do? There's there's nothing that you and I can do that are going to keep Sony from laying off 900 people, EA from laying off however many hundred they announced they were laying off this week. When I go back and I look at the, I wrote an article when I first started in the game business five years ago. And part of that whole spur was from the five or six years ago when Activision announced record profits and then laid off 650 people. There's nothing we can do to keep these big companies from doing that. What can we do on the indie side to help retain some of these people or is it just a lost cause and we're just going to constantly lose a lot of the smart experienced folks in this industry because it's a shit show? Yeah, I think these problems are systematic, right? And there's a very little an independent developer can do to change essentially the business model of public traded companies. This, all of this, the layoffs, the the the, the mergers and acquisitions, and the, the subsequent shutting down of these studios, has all been driven by public traded company business models. Um, they're all looking for ways to write off costs for the end of the fiscal 2024 calendar year, which is why we're seeing so many layoffs in this first half of the year. Um, and so as indies, we are just seeing, unfortunately, the nature of the beast. Um, what we can do as indies is 
once again, a few years ago, it was even at double fine, it was hard to hire for certain roles. Now we don't have that problem. So if you have headcount, if you're thinking about finding headcount, if you can afford the headcount, hire up if you can right now. So at least we're retaining who we can in the industry. We're not going to be able to absorb these mass layoffs at small studios, but we can at least try to upskill our studios um, with new hires. Um, as far as the brain drain, um, I think that's going to be at a major detriment to these studios over time. Um, it's not just about the people who walk out of the door. It's the people who watch those people walk out of the door and how they feel about your company after. And so it is inspiring a huge amount of disloyalty in the employees at these studios at this time. And that's going to affect productivity down the road. Like, why would I work overtime unpaid if you're just going to lay us off anyway? And so they're really kind of creating a, a major issue within their own studio cultures. In addition to, they're essentially not giving anyone an incentive to stick around if they don't have to. Like if I was working at a large company right now and I had leverage, I would be asking around. Um, so I think that there's a double-edged sword um, that's gonna be happening with these larger studios who are making these decisions down the road that their knowledge is walking out of the door and productivity is going to take a hit. Do you think this is the kick in the ass that a lot of the folks in the industry need be, that, because we do, we are our own problem. You know, we see people, you know, they're burning out because they're working 60, 80 hours a week, even though corporate heads are like, Oh, we don't encourage that. It's like, no, you don't, but you don't can stop it either. You know, it, it, because we know if we don't do this, somebody else is going to come in and do it. We're going to lose our job. What you're talking about right there with that sense of loyalty just going out the window, do you think that all of this over the last 18 months is that kick in the butt that folks coming into the industry need to wake up and say, okay, look, it's not worth me sacrificing my health and my family and all this other stuff because at the end of the day, they're just going to lay us off anyway. Yeah, I think they're going to have a lot harder of a time extracting that free labor. I mean, that they, when I first started in the industry, there's always been a crunch problem. Like when I first started Yay Spouse, the lawsuit was happening, um, which sort of led to this huge uptick in outsourcing because uh, people in these companies in the United States didn't want to pay for overtime for their domestic talent. So that led to a huge upswing in outsourcing. Um, and now what you're seeing on the outsourcing side with the age of AI is now all those outsourcing studios are laying off tons of artists as well, as the contracts are also drying up, as the companies are closing. So we're seeing this contraction. I think some of it is largely from speculative investment. And I think some of it, unfortunately, is that they're preparing for AI to come in and take jobs. So it's a lot easier to replace a job uh, that doesn't exist. Um, and so I think that's also why you're starting to see this mass layoff. That's it's like an unsaid thing. Um, but anyone in the industry who's a little closer to the top knows that these conversations are happening and that there are studios who are literally developing these pipelines as we speak. So I think that there is going to be a huge shift over the next few years. Um, I think the introduction of AI, especially in pipelines, is going to be very interesting to watch. I think we'll get efficiencies in some places. And then I think on the back end, 
creativity is going to suffer drastically. Um, and then for um, their products are going to even look more derivative. So I, I'm very interested in seeing how this all plays out, um, especially on the AI side. Um, but I think when it comes to people on the ground who have dedicated their life to this craft, we're all looking at everybody with a side eye right now. Um, <laughs> I think you're what what you're seeing what do you, what do you from mean? that side. And so I think right now what you're seeing and why you're seeing these company buybacks is because we're starting to understand that our investors don't have our best interests at heart. No, they don't. That, that They have their money's best interest at heart. All right, so I've got one more question and then, then I will let you go but you brought up AI for years, years. I have watched people, you know, tell me how they were building an engine that would replace narrative and quest giving and conversation and all this other stuff. Even before AI came in, where do you think, where do you see the narrative side of the industry going with AI? Because now I'm having even more people telling me that, that, you know, they're working on it. They have this great engine to make, you know, conversations and quest givings with AI. And I still don't buy it because I still haven't seen it yet. But I also know people are smart and they're going to get it to it eventually. Where do you see that side of AI going for your level, for your expertise area in the industry? I think when it comes to AI, especially around like narrative use, there's a lot of conversations around NPCs and making you know, interactions feel a bit more alive and less repetitive, um, which I could see the benefit for. But I think at the end of the day, those characters' behavior models need to be driven by a human at some point, right? Um, even with ChatGPT and its current responses, it's a human can easily read it and tell that that's not how humans talk to humans, right? <laughs> so it's sort of like, yes, it's going to evolve. Yes, it will get better. But at the end of the day, unless there's a human driving the, the at least the generation of the model for that character's like personality and comments, you're still, you're just going to get like a bunch of NPCs that all act and, and react the same, right? And so it's sort of like, there's only so much you're going to be able to optimize before humans are just bored with you. And I think a lot of these conversations around AI are completely ignoring who the audience is at the end of the day. And we're still creating content for humans. And if they're not connecting emotionally with that content, then you don't have a customer. And I think a lot of these conversations forget that. They're just focused on the feature and the tool and the bug, but they're not focused on the fact that your customers pay you money for an experience. And if that experience feels cheap and canned, they're going to stop paying you. We still need dungeon masters, basically. Yeah. We're still going to need someone who understands that character's personality, what they're doing in that story, why they're there, why, why would they would say certain things. And sure, the model can randomize that, but you're not going to get that character to feel believable and understandable without that person there shaping that. Lisette, thank you so much. Is there anything that you'd like to plug 
Um, I will be at GDC this year and also throughout, you know, at any time you guys can reach out to me if you're interested in Cornerstone Studios. Um, we're, we're looking for project funding at this time. Um, and we are more than happy to talk to anyone who's interested in us. We're at the, you know, the relationship building phase of Cornerstone Studios. Um, and so for us, we're here to make really strong connections. We're looking for the right partners and we're looking for really great talent to work with. Um, so start start a conversation with us. We're, we're here to talk. And they are all very smart and very talented and I will completely vouch for, for that as well. So I'm looking forward to what you all do, not because I've had a you know, cheat sneak peek, to what it could possibly be, but just because I want to see more studios like you're building here succeed and less of this mass-produced stuff. At the end of the day, emotional connection always wins, and that's what we're banking on. Dan! Yes, sir! Dan, I'm right I, saw here. You, I saw you lingering in the background. I'm here. I'm here. Thank you so much, Lizette. This has been awesome and very, very insightful on many, many different uh, angles. So everyone that's watching, if you're not on our Discord, discord.gg slash business. Also, you can see all of our links. We've got merch. See this right here? You know you want to in you know you want to show up at GDC with like an indie game business hat or hoodie or shirt. Uh, but just check out our link tree, link tree um, slash indie game business. Yes. And we have a brand new website, so all of our stuff is very easy to find now. Just go to indiegame.business or indiegamebusiness.com or one sign, of the other sign up for the newsletter URLs that I own. So yeah. Yeah, sign up for the newsletter to get notified of all of the awesome insights and everything. Thank you so much. Thank you, Lisette. I will see you in San Francisco, I'm sure. Um, stay safe. Enjoy. Keep up the good work. Best of luck. Thank to you. you. Thank you. Thanks, everyone. Thank you. <laughs> Bye. Mm -hmm.